Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we will be opening up the Salt and Light Hope Chest and pulling out some of our favorite conversations. André Regnier speaks to us about what a Catholic missionary identity is. And the Benedictine Sisters have a new album, Angels and Saints at Ephesus. In our second half hour, Kelly Di Domenico tells us about the food crisis in West Africa and we'll also meet singer and songwriter Donna Corey Gibson. We begin now with Catholic Missionary Identity. Some people's experience of church is that they are empty. And for others, the church is full but with unengaged people. So how do we change that? There's a little book written by André Regnier, founder of Catholic Christian Outreach, a university ministry here in Canada, that suggests that what's missing is a rediscovery of our Catholic missionary identity. And André Regnier joins me now on the phone from his home in Ottawa. André, welcome to our program. It's great to be with you. So you're basically saying that people are leaving the church because we're experiencing an identity crisis. So what do you mean? Well, not not really suggesting that people are leaving the church. Um, you know, I'm not really saying that directly in the book, but uh-huh. I'm talking about um, the importance of the idea of an identity, knowing who you are. And when you know who you are, you live a healthy, productive lifestyle. When you don't know who you are, then you live a dysfunctional lifestyle or you fi- try to find some kind of identity outside of who you really are. And I'm suggesting in the book that as Catholics, our deepest identity is, is evangelization, is to be missionary. Okay. And if our people don't know that, then we are going to, we're basically living an identity crisis and we'll experience the negative fruits of that. So you've chosen to use the word missionary, because I think that will connotate some images for some people. Why did you choose to say that our identity is a missionary identity rather than saying it's, that it's an evangelical or an apostolic identity? Well, that's a really good question. Because uh, w- would you say that they all three words uh, imply the same thing? Yeah, I am applying. In the book, I, I suggest that when I say missionary and evangelization, I'm saying the same thing. Yeah. But the reason I use Catholic missionary identity is I'm really just quoting um, Paul the Sixth and okay. uh, John Paul II and you know, Benedict. Right, and <laughs> they they knew what they were talking about. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I'm in good company. <laughs> okay, so then what what do we what do you mean? What did they mean when they said missionary? Well, um, I mean, there's a lot written on it, um, but you know, the, the idea of evangelization I'm proposing in the book again is taking a. a most of it comes from really the the voice and, and the words of John Paul too. Mm-hmm. But uh, when I'm talking about evangelization or mission, again, I'm using it interchangeably. Yeah. Um, is that what is needed today? And when the church talks about evangelization, there's a lot to it. But I'm focusing specifically on the need for the proclamation of the message of Christ uh-huh. in a clear and simple way. Okay. so that people could understand and then know how to respond to that message. So when I'm talking about evangelization, I'm really talking about 
you know, proclaiming the message of the gospel and in words. Is there a difference between proclaiming that message to people who have never heard it before versus people who have heard it but maybe don't n understand it or know it full well? Or is there a difference between evangelization and catechizing? Oh, um, again, in the book, I'm suggesting that um, John Paul II said this. He goes, and I think it's been quoted many times, that you know, in his travels, he's found out, he's realized, and Benedict is saying the same thing, that there are many people who do not know Christ mm. or do not know him well enough. And so, you know, we know those who do not know him well enough, um, meaning they might be the ones that are going to church every Sunday mm -hmm. or the ones that are, some of them are even actively involved, but something inside of them, um, you know, they're longing for much more, that there hasn't been a, like a, a personal connection to, to Christ. And so the call to evangelization is, is uh, proclaiming that message in a clear way that they can understand it mm -hmm. and then respond to it. But then there's those people that don't know. But I believe that the same message has to be proclaimed to them. Right. So that they... they and those people that don't know are often our own people. Mm-hmm that yeah. may have walked away or, you know, somehow yeah. just never really engaged. And so it's the same message that, that is proclaimed to them that even to those people who do not know him well enough. Right. But we would just do it with a different emphasis. Right. I want to ask you about Catholic Christian Outreach, yeah. CCO, because, I mean, all, uh, I mean, CCO people are, uh, they call themselves missionaries, right? Mm -hmm. So is that kind of, would you say, that that has been i hate to use the word success but the success of cco is that that it's very clear that what these young people are doing is mission work uh, yes actually it's again a really good question but um i never really thought about it that way yeah um you know as full-time missionaries at the catholic christian outreach we we're reminded every day that we are missionary yeah but um and uh, yeah i guess that does remind us and you know we kind of know we see it on our name tag that this <laughs> is our job. But again, I just want to, you know, go back to the book. Um, in the Catholic Missionary Identity, I'm saying that every Catholic right. at baptism, although we don't have a name tag, but it's been imprinted on our very heart that we are missionary by nature. Yeah. And so we should be reminded that, unfortunately, as a you know, as you know, a local church and you know, diocese and parishes, just the average Catholic is never really reminded of that, and so we never are aware of it. But as our staff, I guess that's that's a a great insight. Is that you know, we're reminded every day we wake up. We say, "Ooh, I'm a missionary." I guess. I got well, that. you are you are missionaries in a college campus, which yeah. could be. A, Similar to, you know, the missionaries coming from Europe to North America or, what, you know, a land that, that was kind of uh, ripe for evangelization. Um, the bishops j have just started this, this new synod in Rome uh, on the new evangelization. And, and we've been talking about that for a year now, the new evangelization, this and that, the re-evangelization. So is this kind of where this comes in? Do you see a, a parallel or maybe that wisdom of, of Pope Benedict in to say... We need to be missionaries, which is why we need to re-evangelize our, our, these countries that have been Christian for a long time. Yeah, by the way, I'm really excited about that synod coming. I think it's going to be a significant moment for the Church. Yeah. Um, you know, the Church has talked 
about evangelization in the last two to three years. This mm-hmm. synod is going to be about acting upon it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but John Paul II said these powerful words. He said, a radical conversion in thinking is required in uh-huh. order to become a missionary. And that holds true for both for the individual and the entire community. And I believe that this synod, um, what the Church is trying to bring about, is a radical conversion in thinking of you and I, that we need to start thinking of ourselves differently. And this synod is an opportunity for that conversion to take place. That if we as Catholics knew that we were missionary, then we would be able to engage really engage in evangelization in a, in a, a real significant way hmm. globally. You but know, if we don't think that way, yeah. then we'll always be kind of living outside of who we really are. It's funny that you say that because just yesterday I was speaking with my pastor at my parish and he was saying, because he does all the school masses, and he was saying that he, in, in fact, he used, he said uh, that he had a r- almost like a radical conversion because he's been going to the schools always thinking that he's catechizing. These are Catholic. It's a Catholic school. These are Catholics, Catholic students. Let's do catechesis. And then last week he thought, you know what? No, they don't come to church. I'm going to think about evangelizing rather than catechizing. And he had a great response. So, so, So he had that radical change in thinking and it made a difference. So is that what you mean? Well, yeah, yeah. I should be interviewing you because that, that was exactly... <laughs> that's great. Um, that's on the mark. If, if more, if each and every one of us... Yeah. Can you imagine if all our parish priests had that radical conversion in thinking? Absolutely. Uh, that you know, our parishes, the, the parishioners who are waiting and longing for a conversion, yeah. uh, you know, an encounter, that if, if this began to happen in our parishes, you know, that we wouldn't have a problem. This is one other thing that I suggest in this book, is that um, one of the, the main reasons that we're... Str- a lot of struggles that we're having in the Church today, in our parishes and our diocese, is not... I mean, there's many reasons, but the main reason we're learning from the Church is that because we're not missionary. Like, one reason uh, that we're struggling with our faith and our unity and our maturity in our parishes is because we're not missionary. Mm-hmm. But if we would think differently, the Church suggests, and, and the book uh, uh, clearly communicates this, is that we would see revitalized parishes, we would see strengthened faith in our people, and we would see unity in our communities, and we'd see maturity amongst our people, yeah. and then we'd see growth. And this is only when we embrace our missionary identity. And so this priest you're talking about is, yeah. is the perfect um, example of what needs to happen. Yeah, that's great. Now, maybe just in closing, because when uh, I've had missionary d- defined to me or mission work defined to me as living life with your eyes open, which I love because it doesn't mean that I'm better than you, that I'm superior, that I have something that I'm going to teach you, which I think a lot of people might think that that's what a missionary does. How, how would you say really practically that it me- to people that it means to be a missionary and is it as simple as just sharing you said sharing the good news but what does that mean hey i know this guy i have an intimate relationship with this guy jesus christ come and meet him is that all we're talking about yes it, that is what we're talking about um it is really sharing who i know 
uh, to another person. Mm-hmm. But it's not it's not judging them, but it's really inviting them to know who I know. Right. Um, and that's really evangelization. But one critical thing that I think is really important is that we will never be able to communicate that to another person if we ourselves aren't clear on the message of the gospel. Absolutely. If the gospel is kind of, you know, not not clear enough in such a way that I can communicate to another person. I just communicate my confusion mm-hmm. to onto them. And of course, how do you respond to confusion? Yeah. With more confusion. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Andre, this is this is very interesting. Thank you. It's all the time we have, but I, I hope it's enough to get people thinking because I know this is year of faith that's coming. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be a great opportunity for people to start you know, really rethinking what it means to have faith and to share that faith. Um, so thank you for sharing your ideas with us today. Well, thank you very much for having me, and may God bless you, and, uh, you know, uh, open, uh, be, let's just be open to increasing our faith in the next year. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. God bless. Andre Regnier is the co-founder of the University Ministry Program Catholic Christian Outreach, or CCO. His new book, Catholic Missionary Identity, can be purchased through CCO at ccocanada.ca. Here now are the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of Apostles, with Odeus Ego Amote from their new album, Angels and Saints at Ephesus. That was the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, with O Deus Ego Amote, from their new album, Angels and Saints at Ephesus. Now, you may remember last year, the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, released their debut album, Advent at Ephesus. Now, this album flew to the top of the charts, spending six weeks as number one on Billboard's classical music chart, and the sisters 
ended up as the number one classical traditional artist of 2012, according to Nielsen's SoundScan, which is the data system that reports to the Billboard. They were featured on EWTN, Vatican Radio, NPR, USA Today, the National Catholic Register, People Magazine, the Washington Times, and of course, right here on the Salt and Light Hour. And now, the sisters continue their partnership with De Montfort Music and the Decca Label Group, and they've released their second album, Angels and Saints at Ephesus. And to tell us more, I am now joined by Monica Fitzgibbons of De Montfort Music. Monica, welcome back to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you so much, Deacon Pedro. It's great to be with you. This is so much fun. And and I have to tell you, is this unusual that, I mean, this album, the first album just came out. It feels that that was just, I mean, it was just now, November. Yeah. And already you're done, done. It's recorded. It's packaged. It's all ready to to get distribute. Yes. Well, the thing is, there's nothing usual about (laughs) working with this beautiful monastic order of nuns. Uh And my husband reminded me last year when we were sitting down and talking with Decca about making a release, Mm -hmm. uh, that conversation took place just a couple of months before Advent at Ephesus was done, recorded, packaged, ready, out. And so the Holy Spirit obviously is working overtime with them and uh and and they are always singing as you learn from the yes. last time around yes. and a lot of people who really enjoyed Advent at Ephesus there was an outpouring to both mm-hmm. our record label and to the sisters about oh now Advent's over but I still want right. that in my life right. so okay. That's kind of how it all came to be. Can we talk a little bit about the success of Advent? I mean, I already, you know, rhymed off the, the top of the charts and all that, but uh, can you, do you have any stories or some of the feedback that you received from, from the listeners, the people uh, of the success or, or the, I guess, that the shows the need for this kind of music based on that first album? Absolutely. Well, there are many stories but, you know, Deacon Pedro, one of my favorite ones is a letter that came to the sisters from a mother who had been driving somewhere in the South, uh-huh. and uh, she had a very autistic son who uh, was just going through a very disturbed and agitated period, teenage son, uh-huh. and they were in the car, and she was looking for anything, so she thought maybe there might be a classical radio station on, you know, on the air, and right. so she turned it on, and sure enough, they were playing the the sisters, and her son just calmed down. This is probably the first week of Advent. Wow. And she, I mean, if you've ever been around a, a special needs child like that who you want to help so badly to calm down mm-hmm. or to help them get out of where they're at, if you find something, I mean, so she came yeah. home from driving, and this music had taken them all the way home. She got home. She ran into the house quickly ordered it on Amazon, got it on (laughs) iTunes, got it everywhere she could. And she wrote to the sisters saying that the entire rest of Advent leading up to Christmas, there was peace in the house. All of them had experienced the music together. He was, you know, putting his head up to the speakers. And just she could see her own child, this 16-year-old boy, relaxing for the first time 
in a long time. And I keep that visual with me because those are the things you would never know when you're sitting down to put this music out. You just think, well, okay, the Lord obviously is calling this music out of their chapel and into the world, and only he knows why. Wow, yeah, what, uh, what, a, what a beautiful story. And that's all you need to know, right? Yeah. <laughs> it touched one yeah. family, but I'm sure there are, there are thousands like that one family. Um, so, uh, and I understand that, that, and I felt the same way. So now Advent's over and I, I felt guilty listening to Advent music outside of Advent. <laughs> so was that the main reason then as to why yeah. we, we moved on so quickly to the second album? Yes, and... Um, they they wanted to respond to this request for something to listen to year-round, and they really love the uh, Angels and Saints. And this recording is another great mix of polyphony, Gregorian chant, and uh -huh. hymns. But these songs are either written by the saints, such as St. Alphonsus, which yeah. we're going to hear pretty soon, and yeah. St. Francis Xavier, which you've already played, yes, or you're yes, about to play, yes. and uh, St. Therese. Um, they're either about the saints, by the saints, and of course, for the angels. A wonderful companion to the feast days throughout the year. So it was a natural. They're singing these hymns all the time as little compliments to the saints during Vespers, during their mm -hmm. feast days, and... Uh, they spare no trappings when it comes to their art, and so it wasn't that it was going to be difficult for them to go and get this repertoire together. It was more on our end, you know, can we keep up with them? I mean, they could probably put something out every month if we... Right. <laughs> I'm coming to find out. Right. So was it produced... Is, is it the same producer, Christopher Alder? Is He produced the first album as well, right? He didn't. We actually oh. had more of like a pop producer for the first album okay, named Glenn okay. Rosenstein. Okay, yes. And he did a great job. Uh, but we felt that, you know, from what they learned from that first recording, we wanted to get a real classical uh, producer. And so uh, we had the most world-renowned classical producer express interest in this nine-time Grammy Award-winning wow. producer, Christopher Alder. Uh-huh. And uh, so he ultimately came over from Germany to produce them, and he oh, built wow. a state-of-the-art mobile recording studio in their priory. And, of course, our whole goal with this music is, you know, we come in there and get it as it's, you know, normally, uh, you know, uh, manifest into, uh -huh. the, into their lives. We don't want to take them out and put them in a recording studio. No, of course not. So. Of course not. Now, are they, clo yeah. are they they're cloistered, are they? Or No. They want. They are close to being cloistered, but they still have um, this monastery building project, which is why we're really okay. doing this on the practical order uh -huh. to help them be able to build to their monastery funds. so yep. they can realize their full cloister. I see. I see. But 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 one of the reasons for bringing the the recording studio into the convent or into the chapel is is so that they don't have to go out, but also to preserve the, the atmosphere? The yeah, and they are. I mean, to you and I, they, they seem like they're already cloistered. They're, they call themselves contemplative. They uh -huh. don't leave. Yeah, okay. Uh, they're not out and about, but just because their, their monastery really isn't built... They're not completely separate from, right. uh, you know, let's say a priest comes to visit or, you know, someone comes on a retreat or right. something like that. Okay. It's not technically a cloister, yeah, but it's okay. close. 
close. So the new album, the release date is May 7th, but yes. but people can pre-order the music now, correct? Yes, they, they can, and we are needing and encouraging those pre-orders to come in because we want to make their music more widely available. Okay. So in other words, if you go to our website, uh-huh. which is www.demontfortmusic.com, uh-huh. Uh, you'll find the links to pre-order the music, and also, rest assured, by doing so now, you'll also have that little added benefit of receiving the music in time for Mother's Day. Okay, good. So that's a that's an incentive. Nice. That's a good idea. It's a good gift. My mother would like that actually. Nice gift there for Mother's go. Day. There you go. There you and go. and uh, okay. So if people go to the website, the Montfort Music, and we're going to put that link on our website so people can find it easily, and we'll put it on Facebook, and we'll put it everywhere. Um, so that people can pre-order, um, which will support the release. The more pre-orders you have, the more copies you can make once the album is released, correct? Yes, and it'll be more widely available, not only in the U.S. and Canada, but around the world. And that's okay. our goal, is to bring this music as, as far as to as many souls as can be. Okay, good. And then you're also supporting, by buying the music, supporting the sisters, in building their new monastery and whatever other needs that they might have, correct? Absolutely. It's a win-win. Okay, good. And we're actually going to have a copy of this available to give away. And uh, we're going to put more details of that on our Facebook page, Salt Plus Light Radio. Look us up on Facebook uh, to see if we can uh, uh, give out and keep enticing people with a free a free copy of the, of the new album. Monica, thank you very much for sharing again a little bit about the sisters and uh, the work you're doing with us um, but this is very exciting it's beautiful music and oh, and, and, and it sounds like there are more coming so um, we look forward to, to, to all the next albums oh beautiful well thank you for having me on so much Deacon not a problem Monica Fitzgibbons is the co-founder of De Montfort Music you can learn more at demontfortmusic.com And you can learn all about the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of Apostles at their website, benedictinesofmary.org. And here they are now, the Benedictines of Mary, Queen of Apostles, from their new album, Angels and Saints at Ephesus, a hymn by St. Alphonsus Liguori, O God of Loveliness. Thank you. 
was the Benedictine Sisters of Mary, Queen of Apostles with O God of Loveliness from their new album, Angels and Saints at Ephesus. You're listening to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org radio. In the summer of 2012, a food crisis struck West Africa in a region called the Sahel. Particularly hard hit was Niger, a country already languishing near the bottom of the United Nations Human Development Index. If the international community did not intervene, this food crisis threatened to escalate into a famine. Now, our very own news producer, Krista Matrenko, traveled to Niger to learn about the crisis. And Chris witnessed the growing food crisis in the Sahel, as well as the life-saving efforts of the Canadian Catholic Organization for Development and Peace, the Canadian Food Grains Bank, and their local partners. And to tell us now more about that trip and about the crisis, we're now joined by someone who also went on that trip to Niger, Kelly Di Domenico. She's a communications officer for Development and Peace. Kelly, welcome to the program. Thank you. So, what uh, I mean, I, I guess uh, there's a food crisis, but what does that mean? What is happening in Niger? So um, what had happened was, if we go back to the summer of uh, 2011, um, there's only one rainy season in the Sahel in, yeah. in Niger, and they had very poor rains, so the crops didn't grow very well. So essentially, by the time, um, just a few months later, Already people were starting to run out of food in their granaries because it's all subsistence farming there. So uh, basically in the period between when they ran out of grain and to the next harvest, which would take place, which took place um, in the fall of this year uh-huh. of 2012, uh, people were just essentially running out of food and trying to ration what they had. Basically because they didn't have enough rain then. Exactly, from the previous now year. Now, f- for people who are geographically challenged, can you kind of place Niger on a map? So it's in, in West Africa. Yeah, and so it's essentially a strip of land that sits just below the Sahara okay. and right above sub-Saharan Africa. So I- is it desert or what does it look like? Parts of it are desert and then other parts can be actually quite, uh, when they receive rain, they can be quite green. Um, the difficulty is that they only have one rainy season, whereas other parts um, in sub-Saharan Africa can sometimes have up to three rainy seasons. Okay. So they just have that like one shot. Right, once a year. Now, sometimes when we hear about uh, these type of uh, uh, crises in in Africa, Mm -hmm. sometimes it points to corruption in the government. How how is that in in Niger in terms of the government, or how that is being handled? Or is there are there guerrillas? I know they're very close to Mali. Um, Definitely, this year, what contributed was the fact that um, already, you know. The, the harvest wasn't very good from the previous year, but then the political instability in Mali um, because of the crisis that happened there um, uh-huh. last spring, it led to a lot of refugees and a lot of displacement. So what happens is people cross the border, so they'll go and stay with families. So people from Mali crossing the border into Niger. Yeah, into Niger and also into Burkina Faso. Uh-huh. So, you know, already families are quite large and then they're taking in, you know, um, people Okay, um, so then that adds to the number of people that have to be fed. Exactly. So it adds an extra pressure um, on people to have enough food and to make sure enough food is spread around. So when you working here in Canada for an organization, Development and Peace, 
go over there. How does that happen? How do you decide that you, that's the country, that's the crisis that you're going to help? Well, I mean, we always try to evaluate um, the needs. And what was particular about this crisis was that there was a lot of advance warning. Um, you know, the fact that the people already knew that the harvest was poor the previous uh-huh. year. Um, we were getting, we're, we're constantly in touch with our local partner organizations. Right. That's one of our strengths. And so they were already warning that, you know, people are running out of food and this is going to get worse and worse as the months go along um, until the next harvest. So, so when, uh, sorry, go ahead. Uh, so we knew that if we could start to do an intervention early enough, it could help prevent further suffering. Okay, so, and, and the local partners that you talk about are, are, are Nigerian, do you say Nigerian? Yeah, Nigerian. Nigerian yeah. organizations <laughs> That, that are there, or church organizations, or both? Um, so we're part of the Caritas Internationalis Network, Okay. Um, which yep. is a federation of about 165 organizations. So uh, we were working with Caritas Niger, and it's all uh, local people who are there on the ground and really know the situation. Okay, I see. So, so then you're, okay, so you're part of a, a larger network. Yeah, that's right. It's the second largest humanitarian network after the Red Cross. And that, and, and it's owned by the church, the Catholic yes, Church. It's, yeah, uh, it's a Catholic network. Yes. So when you went, other than bringing food, is that the extent of the help or wh- what kind of things were you doing to help? Um, so with the Canadian Food Grains Bank, of which we're a member, that's a, a Christian network here in Canada, Yeah. Um, we supported a lot of food distributions, which help people kind of get through to the next harvest. But we also um, wanted to help a bit more with, um, you know, allowing people to get some income. Uh, so there was what we call cash for work projects where uh-huh. people will, you know, do things in the community. Sometimes it's building roads or um, doing some harvesting uh, well, where they'll get paid and then they have some money to buy food in the market. And sorry, who pays them? Uh, so, well... How does Caritas that work? Niger will pay them, but through our support, for instance. So they would be doing work for for you or for the for the particular organization, like the, yeah. the Caritas organization. Generally, the the work is um, to improve the community. Yeah. So the work will always be within the community, but they will be paid by the local right. organization. Okay. And that's always done in conjunction with the local government as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now every year, development and peace. Uh, your organization, I, maybe I should say the full name, the Canadian Catholic Organization for Development and Peace. It's just such a long name. Yeah, um, I know. <laughs> during Lent has a special campaign. Yes. Um, is that campaign this year related to the crisis in West Africa, or is it a different campaign? Uh, not specifically, but our campaign is to raise money for all of our programs. We're okay. in over 20 countries. Um, with We're working with about 90 local organizations, uh-huh. uh, and 10% of what's raised during Lent does go towards our emergency programs, um, which is great because if an emergency happens, especially when it's uh, a natural disaster, it can happen very quickly, right. we already have money we can draw on to send right away towards, towards support. Um, but with the Sahel, for instance, you know, we, we launched a specific campaign for that as well and raised uh, over $2 million, which is really, wow. yeah, we, we felt really blessed by that. Um, That's amazing. All the support. So we'll be able to stay in the Sahel for probably about two years thanks to that uh, that fundraising. So if people, other than, I mean, other, I guess money is always uh, good, <laughs> but mm-hmm. uh, other than giving money, giving money, is there another way that people can help? 
Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, I think it's really important if people can um, raise awareness amongst the people around them. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, you know, solidarity is is not just about, you know, giving financially, but uh, keeping people in their thoughts and prayers. And even in in simple actions in our day-to-day lives, you know, and trying to live a little more simply, that can Uh, can make a huge contribution. Yeah, yeah, that's a good good advice for Lent. Mm -hmm. Um, So what happens now in Niger? Uh, There still, has the, the next crop gone in the ground yet? Uh, not yet. They did have a good harvest this year. Uh-huh. So the hope is that, um, you know, there, there won't, they won't be facing the same challenges as last year. But the difficulty as well is because these crises are becoming more common, mm-hmm. the rains are just not, um, they're less consistent than they used to be. So people are having a harder time recovering from each crisis. So we're going to continue to support people in improving agricultural techniques, um, you know, so they can cope better with, with the conditions. One of the things that people mentioned when we were there was, um, for instance, just the need for fertilizer. Oh, yeah. So, you know, um, sometimes it's it's helping to get projects like that off the ground where mm-hmm. they can have fertilizer production and have access to that to make their crops better. Well, thank you, Kelly, very much for the work that you're doing, for the work of of Development and Peace, and for sharing a little bit of that with us today. Oh, well, thank you for having me. That was Kelly DiDomenico of the Canadian Catholic Organization for Development and Peace. You can learn more about Development and Peace and their campaign, their Lenten campaign this year, at devp.org. And also, to learn more about the food crisis in Niger, you can watch the upcoming Salt and Light TV production, A New Leaf, and you can find all the details at saltandlighttv.org slash a new leaf. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Donna Corey Gibson, with She Was There from her album, The Way of the Cross. She was there to dry your eyes The first time that you cried She was there again Hold you in her arms She was support for your first steps And to lift you when you fell She's the heart that grew to love you so well And there she is To see you once again No words are even spoken Her eyes reveal the pain Your most holy mother With a sword of sorrow in her heart And you walk by One last time She was there She was there in the crowd All the people pushing round And you said that she should have to see you like this You tried to walk in her direction To steal another glance One last time, one last word, one last chance 
That was Donna Corey Gibson with a song for the fourth station, She Was There, from her album, The Way of the Cross. Donna Corey Gibson has been sharing her songs, sung prayers and meditations for many years. She's sung in Catholic churches and prayer groups. She's been on TV and she's a frequent guest at many conferences and events across the U.S. You may have heard her on Catholic radio stations across the U.S. and worldwide on the EWTN Global Catholic Network and also if you do shortwave on the shortwave station WEWN. She's also been on EWTN's Life on the Rock and Backstage and on the Family Land Network's Maria Allen Dom's Inn and the concert series His Love. And now she is on the Salt and Light Hour with me. So Donna, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. So did you always want to be a singer? Oh my goodness, ever since I was nine years old. And I got a big head when I was little too because everybody told me how well I sang. So okay, so you, you, you would I run around singing... All the time. All the time. And and um, our elementary school recorded an album, and I had a solo, and was famous in the elementary school. <laughs> so I started pretty young. So so, but did you did you want to do be the kind of singer that you are now? Does that make sense? 
Oh, I know what you mean. And no, no, I was going to be rich and famous on the radio and all that. <laughs> That's all I knew. I didn't know any other kind of music. So did you, and, um, were you not brought up in a in a religious home? Well, you know, we prayed grace on Sundays. <laughs> we went to church <laughs> okay. on Sundays. And occasionally went to confession. And that's about it. So I'd have to say no. It was pretty worldly. Okay, but it was Catholic. And we were Catholic. I was, I'm a cradle Catholic. You betcha. Right, and you wanted to, because you, you lived in New York, right? Did you go to New York because you wanted to be I a did. big... I, well, I was born there. We moved to Florida, and then oh, I moved yeah. back because, you know, I wanted that record deal. And um, so you I want. Decided so you wanted to be a, a singer or singer-songwriter, uh, uh, like a recording artist, not like Broadway? Yeah, absolutely. No, I did musical theater in high school. Yeah. And I decided that was not the lifestyle I wanted. I wanted to make records. You wanted to make records. They make more money. Um, exactly. <laughs> and were you, were you songwriting as a, as a little girl and as, as a teenager as well? Yeah, I started when I was 15 years old, and I won a songwriting competition at the local community college. I mean, I had every indication that this was going to be my life for the rest of my life. So, so then what happened? What changed? Where was that conversion? Or sometimes it's it's a gradual conversion, but the, the, was it a moment? Did something change for you? No, it wasn't a moment. When I moved, um, I had taken all my religious books with me. Granted, I had never read them, but I packed them all and brought them with me. And then when my life wasn't going the way I wanted to, um, I was doing all the commercial music, and, but I, and I was doing it my way. I wasn't doing it God's way. Right. And it, it wasn't working, and I'm like, you know, I, I don't, that's it. I, I don't want to do this anymore. I, and I kind of died to it all. I died to self. And then when, and the next day, I guess, so I guess it was a turning, I decided that I was going to do it all God's way. And I didn't know what that was, so I had to learn. And I, I dove into the Bible and started a relationship with the Lord. And I was going. I was okay, but wait. My was, uh, so wait, back up, because so you you did you become disillusioned because it wasn't going the way you wanted it to go? That's why you kind of said, "I don't want to do this anymore." No, the disillusionment came later. Um, yeah, th- there was kind of. I guess it was a two-step process. Yeah. The, the, the major conversion of turning back to the Lord was when my life just fell apart doing it my way right. in New York. And then after um, I decided to give everything to God, I wasn't even doing music anymore. I was a secretary. Right. And I, and I was telling the Lord, you know, I'll be happy. I'll stay here, and I'll be a secretary if this is what you want. But I'm pretty good at music, <laughs> so I, I would like to do that if you would make a way for me. And so I started sending out my demos again, and and I got the interest of a big-time uh, recording studio person in Manhattan, uh-huh. and he signed me to a production deal. I could record anything I wanted to in this fancy billion-dollar studio in, in New York. So I was doing that for a while, still... Um, living God's way now, you know, I had to put, now I had to put up with how I was spoken to, and um, all the innuendos and the things that go with the secular right. music industry, and get teased for my beliefs, and I was, I was going to my prayer groups, and I was going to Mass more often than just on Sunday, uh-huh. and there came a point, and this is the second part of the conversion, where um, I didn't want it anymore. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't nice. 
it, it, it had no substance to it. I was writing party tunes, you know, have a good time tunes, yeah. and, or love songs that could only find fulfillment in Jesus. Yeah. So I didn't want to be lukewarm and spit mm-hmm. out of God's mouth. Right. So I decided, no, I'm going to be hot, and I'm just going to write for the Lord. And I, But I, even that, it didn't happen right away. I said, Lord, I need a, a fork in the road. Because uh-huh. all I know how to do is music, and so if you want me to do something else, um, I need you to put something in my past so I can choose something else. Well, at the time, I was also writing jingles, uh-huh. and and I wrote one that made me quite a bit of money, and I was able to afford a pilgrimage to Israel. Oh, yeah. And when I went there, I met my husband, who was visiting from Seattle. Okay. So I decided to just quit the whole business. I didn't want anything to do with music anymore. I had lost interest in all of it, and I was just going to get married. <laughs> so I did. Right. And before, that was never a, a, even an option to me. I never I never thought Marriage. That I yeah. Married. Yeah. Oh. So I got married and moved away and quit the whole business. So that's when you moved to Washington State? Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And... um. And my, I, I wrote a song for my husband, I sang it at my wedding, and my father-in-law heard me sing for the first time, and after we were married six months, he came to visit, he said, so when are you going to sing again? Huh. And, I, and I told him, oh, I don't do that, I, give that, I gave that up. And yeah. he got mad, he banged on the table and said, you can't quit. Good for him. So my out was, well, when God inspires me to do something, right. I'll do it. Right. So, and, and you know... God held me up to that. I had my weekends available for the first time in my life, now mm-hmm. that I was married. And I went to a Marian conference. Oh, yeah. And I got the inspiration there to sing prayers. Right. Because um, I'm a lay Carmelite, and really my uh, yeah. personality and charisma is to just hide away in my room and pray. Uh-huh. I really don't like to talk to people and be out there. So I decided, well, I like music, I'll, I'll sing some prayers, and... And that'll get my father-in-law off my back and, you know, maybe be some fun at the same time. And I, I made a very simple recording, Prayers from Heaven and to Heaven. Yeah. Very popular Catholic prayers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Things that I think people would like. And it was very successful. And somebody asked me to sing the rosary, so I sang the rosary. Okay. And then from then on, it just never stopped. Well, I just kept recording prayers. Le- yeah, let me ask you about that, because that seems to be how... I- would you define your ministry as as uh, music that is focused on prayer and explaining uh, or, or, or scripture and explaining the truth of yeah. the Catholic Church. So you so you take prayer sometimes word for word and set mm-hmm. them to music. Right. It helps you memorize them. If you can no, that's them. true. That's true. Magnificat and Canticle of Zechariah from Morning Prayer, you know, Liturgy of the Hours that I say as a Carmelite, I decided why not sing that so <laughs> I can memorize it and not have to flip around all the time. And right. then other scriptures... Um, that would be that was my third album, um, prayers from scripture and the yeah, church. Yeah, that's right. That we made one. And, and now you have this way of the cross album, which, I mean, it's not really prayer set to music, but the fact that there's a song for each station, I guess, also to help people pray the stations of the cross. Well, they are prayers and they're meditations. I went through seven oh, really? way of the cross books. And I took pages and pages of notes for each song. Really? And then, and then manipulated the words, you know, to tell the story. And But then there's a personal response to it. That's the prayer. And all of these meditation books not just focus on the station, but they do have a prayer response at the end. You know, how can I be better? Yeah, how yeah, of I course. Yeah. What does it do for me? 
And so sets of music that really helps you to enter in. And that, and I got video with it, too. And, but the coolest part is that I did not pay for any of this. This is, this is where my record deal that God gave me right. came in. Right, okay. Because this is my eighth album, so I have quite a fan base by now. And yeah. I'm touring and I'm doing concerts, and I'm mentioning to people this, this a new project, Way of the Cross, that I'm working on, and I really need real violins because it's sad. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. I have a synthesizer, and I, but I can't afford that. Would you like to get involved in the music business? And so the entire project, Soup to Nuts, was paid for by my fan base. Oh, my Talk gosh. About that's God's amazing. Deal, right? I that's didn't amazing. need a secular deal to do what I want to do. And it's very liberating because the money comes in and it's earmarked. I can only record music with it. Yeah, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. So oh, good for you. And, it, and, it, and it's really fabulous. And I offer two free downloads of songs at my website, DonnaCoreyGibson.com. Yes. Mm-hmm. So if people so wanted to find yeah. if people want to find out more, they can go to that website. Um, I love I I listened to the album and I loved. I think the songs are great. They're 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 so they, they as you said they they're helpful as a response to the station, but also to help you enter into the mystery, the the actual scene. Um, yeah. I, I think it's really good and it's really well produced. It, it's really well Again. done. Um, so it's been it's been really good for me to hear it, and especially during Lent, I think. Uh, our listeners can can benefit from uh, from either taking the whole album or listening to it uh, on the air, or um, they can go to YouTube, my YouTube site, and they can watch all and the they videos can watch the videos. Okay, great. So Donna, that's all the time we have. But thank you so much for uh, telling us a bit more about what you do and about your music and for sharing it with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was our featured artist of the week, Donna Corey Gibson. You can learn more about her at donnacoreygibson.com. Here now is Donna with the song for the first station of the cross from her album, The Way of the Cross, Behold the Man. We've gone astray Like sheep each one going his own way The Lord has laid The guilt of us all on you We hide our faces Not to see the stripes upon your back Though harshly treated You open not your mouth You wear a crown Woven from thorns and made a fool Without a sound Our punishment you bear He was found guilty, and so we think of him as stricken, afflicted by God. You are what Pilate says, behold the man, this Jesus, beaten man, condemned. listening to Donna Corey Gibson with Behold the Man from her album The Way of the Cross. And that concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website, saltandlighttv.org radio. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Petty.
Suffering. 